0: Friends, it is wedding season, and uh, I, I would love for us to take a moment this morning uh, to just be praying for marriages. Uh, we have a, a lot of weddings going on in our congregation. It's a reminder of how many young marriages are starting during this time. Uh, Alex and Jenny's wedding we did last week after church. I'm just scanning to see if I see them. Um, Pastor Kenny. Pastor Kenny was in Wisconsin performing his uh, second oldest son's wedding this week, Josiah White's wedding. Uh, And Kenny uh, did tell me that it was a, a nice day for a white wedding there in Wisconsin. And... I think I see Mike and Natalie back there. It's this week. You guys ready? Yeah. Yeah, you are. Absolutely. And I think I see Gabe and Lindsay over here. We got less than a month. We're ready. So exciting, you guys. We got all of these uh, marriages taking place. And let's just take a minute to pray for some of these new and fresh marriages and uh, maybe even some of ours that aren't so new and fresh. Father, uh, we love you so much and we're thankful for what you have done in our lives, and we recognize just the the glory there is in your design for marriage, how you have uh, made us to reflect your relationship with your body, the bride. And Lord, we want to pray for these young marriages, the ones that have just happened, the ones that are coming up in the next few weeks. Lord, we pray that they'd be a blessing to you, that they'd reflect you, uh, that the weddings themselves would reflect your glory and that the marriages would speak to the gospel and your life-transforming work. And we're just thankful for what you have designed in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes. Yes. All right, you guys, we are in the middle of a sermon series entitled, Romans Road. And as we have been walking through different chapters in the book of Romans, we have seen this diagram before. We've used this diagram in order to summarize the first few chapters of the book of Romans where we have learned that because of Adam and Eve's sin, we have this sin nature. And so we choose to disobey God and to sin against him. And so all of us are on this bottom path. And if we stay on that bottom path, on the day of judgment, we're told that there's punishment for sin. But God has made a way. So that we can get off of that bottom path and move to the upper path, a path that's filled with obedience and love and righteousness, where on the day of judgment we enter into life forever with God and all that is good. And He has made a way for us to move from that bottom path to the top path. And what is that way? It is through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God, right? For the what? For the salvation of everyone who believes, right? First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So trusting in Jesus Christ is the way we move from that bottom path to that top path. And we have been looking at that over the course of the last few weeks. Now, as the people in Rome are hearing Paul talk about that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, there are some of them who have a particular question that Paul's now going to address. Partic- uh, so, some of them have grown up as Jews. They have been converted to follow Jesus as their Messiah, and they have a question about this salvation by grace through faith. And their question is what was the point of all that law keeping we were trying to do? I mean, we, we grew up studying the law. Try, trying to live the law. What, what was the point of all of that if salvation is by God's grace through Jesus? And we might ask that same question as New Covenant believers today. What is the point of that whole left side of my Bible? Right? What, what is that all about? We, we have kids in here who, as a part of our kids' ministry, have memorized the Ten Commandments. We have people in the court systems who have fought in order to keep God's commandments in American courtrooms. Why? If we're saved by God's grace through faith, what is the point of all of that? What is the point of the law? And that's going to be what Paul deals with in this section of Romans, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. What is the role of the Old Testament law in the life of the believer? And he's going to start with this question. Are we still bound to the law? As followers of Jesus, is there some way in which we are still bound to the law? And he says in verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. On whom is the law binding? Those who are alive. And so if I'm driving by myself on my way home today, And I have a heart attack and keel over and die in my car, but my foot gets stuck on the accelerator pedal. And all of a sudden, I'm going 90 and a 45, and a police officer pulls in behind me, and my car kind of finally drifts over to the side of the road, and the police officer comes to my window and finds me there dead in the car. Is the police officer going to write me a ticket at that point? (laughs) No, why? Because laws are for the living. Laws do not apply to the dead. The laws are for the living. Paul has a better illustration than I do with this. He says, "...for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive." But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Erica and I are bound to each other by the law in marriage. Doesn't that sound romantic? (laughs) It means that because we're married, we can't just go out and marry other people. That's not the way God's law works. No, we are in a covenant relationship with each other. But if I die, maybe in my car on the way home, right? Suddenly, the law of that marriage binding no longer applies to her, right? She is free. (laughs) No, that's not the phrase I wanted. (laughs) She is no longer bound by that marital law, right? And that is all Paul is saying is, that death frees a person from the law. Death frees a person from the law. Now, why is he talking about this? If he's writing to them and they're reading it, clearly they're alive. Or, or are they? Right. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To him who has been raised from the dead... "...in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code." Right, did you catch what Paul says to the Romans? He said, hey, "You are dead to this. When I look at you Romans, I see dead people." Right? Now, dead to what? Well, chapter 6, the last chapter was all about how they are dead to sin. Now in chapter 7, he says, "You are dead to the law." What does that phrase mean? Dead to Uh, If my daughter and I, today, get into the biggest fight of all time, I, I don't just mean the biggest fight of our relationship, I mean the biggest fight of all time, and I get mad and I declare to her, get out of her, you are dead to me. Right? What does that mean? That means you're no longer a part of the family. You're no longer in relationship with me. Isn't that what it means if I declare her to be dead to me? Now, that's a silly illustration because I could never be mad at my baby girl. (laughs) But, on a serious note, all around the world in different cultures, there are young people who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And their parents and their family hate that they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And they actually hold funeral rituals in order to declare that young person to be dead because they place their faith in Jesus. The family says, you are dead to us. What does that mean? You're no longer a part of this family, right? You no longer have relationship to us in this family. And in the same way, Paul is saying, you're dead to sin. You no longer relate to sin. You're no longer in that family. And you are no longer a part of that binding to the law, right? That relationship is dead to you. You you don't have that obligation any longer in your life. Dead to the law. He also says uh, in a similar fashion, we're released from the law. In what way are we released from captivity to the law? Well, there's more than one way, but one way that I'd like to highlight is We are released from the guilt and condemnation that our sins deserve under the law. All of us are guilty and should stand condemned because of our sinfulness. Every one of us have broken the law, right? You ever coveted something that somebody else had or that you maybe wanted? You ever lied to somebody? You ever stolen something? Anyone ever looked at another person lustfully? Anybody ever placed anything ahead of God in priority over the course of their day? We have all broken God's law. And so we stand condemned in our sins. But the gospel is what? That because of the work of Jesus, that condemnation and guilt was placed upon Jesus. Jesus. And I gain his righteousness. And so now I am free from that condemnation. I no longer have to live in that place of guilt and that place of shame. As it said, we are released from the law. No longer under that sin. No longer under that condemnation. As Romans 8, 1-3 puts it, There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Through God's salvation, you are released from the condemnation of your sins. Why does God do that? Why did did he send his son to pay the price? Why why does he save us? Is is it simply so that we can go to heaven? Is that the only reason that God has saved us? So that one day I can go and be a part of a perfect paradise? Now friends, going to heaven is a mega blessing of our salvation. We cannot think about it and sing about it enough. But did you note in verse 4... That it gave a different reason that God has saved us. Right? What did verse 4 say in terms of the reason of our salvation? Why are we saved? Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Why has he saved us? Why has he raised us to new life? In order that we might bear fruit for God. In order that we may bear fruit for God, why has God saved you? Simply so that you can get a ticket into heaven? Nope. He has saved you so that your life will be transformed and you will bear fruit for the living God, so that you will become like Christ in the manner of your living. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to, right? Why did He save us? Here we go. To be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Did God save you simply so you could go to heaven? No, God saved you so that you would be conformed to the image of his son growing more and more in the fruit of Jesus Christ in your life. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. These verses may be familiar to some of you. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why did he save you? Here we go. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why has God recreated you in Christ Jesus? Why have you been saved? So that you can do the good works that God has prepared for you, so that you can become like Jesus Christ. One more that won't be on the screen, Ephesians 5. This gets read at some of those weddings we've talked about. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did Jesus give himself up for the church? Listen to where this goes now. Gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Why did Christ give himself up for us? Was it simply so that we could get a ticket into heaven? No, why why did Christ give himself up for us? So that we would be washed, so that we would be cleansed, so that we would become like Jesus growing more and more like Jesus in our daily lives and so that ultimately one day, as 1 John 3, 2 says, we will be like him as we see him as he is. That's God's design for our salvation. And this appeals to me. Does it appeal to you? That God has saved us for something more than just a free ticket into heaven one day? That he has saved us to be a part of his great big plan to show his glory and his majesty to everyone? That through his transformational work in your life, he wants to shine his majesty and his beauty to everyone around? That is an exciting prospect that God has saved you so that he can show himself off through you. And what happens in your life? We are thankful to him for that. We are saved to bear fruit for God. So, we're saved to bear fruit for God. We're saved by his grace and through faith and not by works of the law. And so, do we just throw it out? Is there any reason for the law at this point for those who are followers of Jesus Christ? Paul's going to say, absolutely. Absolutely. No, you are not saved by works of the law, but it still plays a very important role in our lives. And he starts telling us about that in verse 7. When uh, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, "You shall not covet." Paul says the law teaches us what is right from what is wrong. I, I wouldn't know what's right from wrong if the law hadn't taught it to me. And the same is true in our lives. The law teaches us what is right and what is wrong. Over the last few weeks, there has been more conversation, perhaps than normal, about the subject of abortion. And Christians say, wait a minute, abortion is wrong. What is that position based in when Christians say abortion is wrong? It's based in the law of God. The fact that the Law of God, the Old Testament law of God then affirmed throughout the scriptures says it is wrong in order to kill an innocent human being. Right? It, it affirms it, it defines it, the law is what teaches us what murder is, the intentional killing of an innocent human being. That is how the Old Testament law defines it. It, it teaches us what it is and that it's wrong. In order for us to understand how the Old Testament law informs us about what is right and what is wrong, we need to understand that it is the principle of the law that teaches us right and wrong, not the rule of the law as it was laid out for the nation of Israel. The rule of the law, as we see in the Old Testament, was given to Israel under the Old Covenant for a specific time for a national theocracy that was meant to dwell within a specific promised land and told them how they were to dwell there. That rule of law does not apply to us. I'll say that again. That rule of law does not apply to us which is precisely the reason that so many of you, as you sit here this morning, feel free to break that law. Right? Leviticus 19.19, 19. what does it say? And you shall not wear clothing woven of two kinds of fabric. How many of you are breaking that law this morning? <laughs> Leviticus 19.29, what does it say? Leviticus 19.29 says, You shall not cut the hair on the sides of your head, nor trim your beards. Now, I see some of you that are close to being obedient to that. <laughs> but many of you are trimming, right? You're trimming, you're sinning and you're tri- No. Right? The rule of law does not apply to us. But the principle behind that law teaches us about the character of God and what is right and wrong. And so as we read Leviticus 18-20, to 20, we find out that these laws exist because God wanted Israel to be set apart from all of the other nations around them. And so he did that through specific rituals and even through their appearance. That principle of God wanting a people who are set apart from him absolutely continues to apply to us. And the New Testament affirms we're to be set apart through these relational fruit that now uh, we exhibit in our community. Things like love and patience and kindness. These set us apart from the world. We're still to be set apart, but the rule of law was for them. This is true even of the big commandments. You think about the Ten Commandments. God said in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10, keep a Sabbath. I want you to set the last day of the week, Saturday, aside, and as a community, I want you to give up your work and celebrate me and spend time with me. That rule, even though it is one of the Ten Commandments, does not apply to us as followers of Jesus Christ. The rule does not apply. And we see that outlined in multiple places in the New Testament. But one of them is right here in this book. Where there are those in the Roman church who are observing Sabbath. And others in the church at Rome who are not observing Sabbath. And Paul says to them, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Yep, some do. And another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Right? Paul says in this area, seek to honor God, whether you're keeping a Sabbath, whether you're not keeping a Sabbath. But he makes it very clear you are not bound to keep a Sabbath. The rule of law does not apply to you as a follower of Jesus. But the principle behind that rule absolutely informs us. The principles like the fact that God loves you. And so in seeking your best, he has designed you to spend some time resting and being with him. The principle that God wants us to love him. And he recognizes that how we use our time as a primary resource shows what we love. And so he wants time set aside in order to be with him. We see that throughout the scriptures. The principle that God wants us to be a people of faith and to trust in him. That even though we may not work as much as the person next to us who's working seven days a week, he's going to provide for us as we seek him instead. These principles still apply and teach us about the character of God and what is right and wrong. And so while the rules were for Israel, the principles teach us about what is right and what is wrong. But the law goes beyond simply teaching us what is right and wrong. It also holds up a mirror and shows us just how wrong we are. Right? Again, in this verse, it not only shows Paul about coveting, it showed him that he what? That he coveted. And the law doesn't just teach us about what is right and what is wrong. It shows us that we do wrong. The law acts as a mirror. And when we stand up in front of the mirror, sometimes what we see is that we've got dirt all over us. The mirror simply reflects what is there, the sin that is in our life, the uncleanliness that is in our life. That's why Romans 3 verse 20 said this, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. God's word shows us that we are wrong. I experienced this as a kid when I was six, seven years old. It was the law of God as it had been taught to me that showed me how wrong I was and my need for a Savior. I knew that God had said we weren't supposed to lie or bear false witness. And yet at age six or seven, I could see multiple times that I had lied to my parents, lied to friends, lied to teachers. I knew that the law said I wasn't supposed to covet my neighbor's stuff. And yet, when I saw my friend Eric down the road and his cool Boba Fett action figure that shot a missile out of the jetpack, I knew that life would only be fulfilled if I had that Boba Fett action figure. Right? I knew that God's design was that I would love my little sister well. And I also knew that most days my relationship with my sister was about what I wanted and trying to get her to live in the way that I wanted her to live. And when I would go to bed at night and lay there in the dark and the quiet, God's Spirit would come and bring conviction in my life about those things that I did wrong. What did the Spirit use? He used the law of God right the commands of God in order to bring that conviction i was blessed i grew up at a time before we had all of the devices that keep people from spending time with god's spirit when they go to bed right when i was a kid you just went to bed in the dark and in the midst of that quiet right god's spirit would move and work during the day i didn't feel a lot of conviction there were all kinds of distractions but it was in the midst of that time where there weren't distractions where the Spirit of God would take God's commands and press my guilt upon me, and then what? What's the next step? Show me how much I needed a Savior. Show me how much I needed a Savior in that situation. I I read this last week, some writings by a pastor who talked about another group of young people who felt God's conviction because of the law. Uh, He writes this, some time ago, I was invited to be a counselor at a junior high camp. I don't know how many of you people out there reading this book are Roman Catholics. But the old Roman Catholic theology is right. There is a purgatory. It's a junior high camp. (laughs) A place between heaven and hell where people go to suffer for their sins. (laughs) I've never met meaner kids in my life than at this junior high camp. Don't get me wrong, I love junior high kids individually. But the gang at this junior high camp was really bad. Something must happen to kids in a group at camp. They get mean. Let me tell you, these kids at this junior high camp turned really mean. Their meanness was focused on an unfortunate kid named Billy. Billy really broke my heart because he'd been born with a whole host of birth defects. And the other kids mocked him for it. Billy would walk across the grounds of the camp in his disjointed manner, and the others would line up behind him, imitating him and mimicking his every movement. They thought this was funny. It was the worst kind of junior high cruelty I'd ever seen. One day I watched as Billy asked one of the boys a question, which way is the craft shop? The other boy twisted up grotesquely, pointing a dozen different ways and said, that way. I felt like punching out this mean kid. How could he be so cruel? The level of meanness reached its lowest point on a Wednesday morning. Billy's cabin had been assigned the morning devotions for a camp of 150 kids. All the boys in his cabin had voted for Billy to be a speaker. I knew, and they knew, that he couldn't do it. They just wanted to get him up there so they could mock him and laugh. They thought it would be fun to watch Billy try to deliver a devotional talk. I was irate. I was livid. I was seething with anger. Seething with anger as little Billy got up out of his seat and limped his way to the platform. You could hear the chuckles of mocking laughter going through the group. What was amazing was the ridicule of the boys didn't stop this little guy. He took his place and started to speak. It took Billy almost five tortured minutes to say, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, and I love Jesus. When he finished, there was dead silence. I looked over my shoulder, and there were junior high boys shaking and trembling. It wasn't long before I saw tears coming down the cheeks of almost every boy at that camp. A revival broke out in that camp that day and kids turned their lives over to Jesus. A whole host of junior high boys committed their lives to Christ and to Christian service and to following Jesus no matter what the cost. Why? Because they were convicted by the law. That's right, they were convicted by the law. Most of these kids who had grown up in church knew that the law was to love God, and out of that, to love your neighbor. And they knew, as God's Spirit brought conviction on their hearts, that they hadn't loved God and that they were not loving their neighbor. They saw how unclean they were. They saw how sinful they were and how desperately they needed a Savior. The law teaches us right from wrong, but the law also shows us how wrong we are. Finally, Paul says, the law also awakens temptation in us. It doesn't just show us where we've done wrong. It shows us that inclination for wrong that is in us. He says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. It isn't the law itself that is the problem here. The law teaches us appropriately what is right from wrong. But Paul says, as soon as the law taught me what was right, there is something inside of me. This sinful impulse that immediately said, oh, but I kind of want to do what's wrong. Now that I hear that commandment not to cross that line, I kind of want to get my toes over that line. Never really had an inclination to cross that line till I heard the command not to cross that line. And now guess what? Now I kind of want to know what happens when I cross that line. Have you ever experienced that? When, When I was a kid, my parents came home one time in December and they brought in a bunch of stuff and went upstairs. And then they came downstairs and they told my sister and I, you are not to go in our bedroom closet. Right, It was December, and they just bought a bunch of gifts and put them in the closet upstairs. Now, they didn't tell us there were gifts in the closet upstairs. All they told us was, you are not to go in the closet upstairs. As soon as they told me that, what happened? Something rose up inside of me and said, how do I get in the closet upstairs? It also apparently happened in my sister because she became my co-conspirator, And we began to enter into this covert operation about how we could get in to the closet upstairs. Now, friends, before they said, don't go in the closet upstairs, I didn't have any desire to go in their closet. What would be the point of that? No interest whatsoever. But the moment they said, don't go in the closet upstairs, something was enlivened in me that said, oh, I bet there's something in the closet upstairs. I bet happiness awaits if I do the opposite. Of what they say. Now, the commandment they gave me was for my good. They wanted me to have that Christmas morning special feeling of opening something amazing. They didn't want me to ruin that by going in a closet and finding it for myself unwrapped. But but as soon as they gave me the commandment, which was good, it enlivened something in me that wanted to break that commandment. And Paul says, that's what the law does. It tells us what's good, but it enlivens something inside of us. Something in our sin nature that immediately says, oh, but I wonder. Hmm. The fruit looks good to me. It's pleasing to the eye. Hmm. The command enlivens something. The law teaches us right from wrong. It shows us that we're wrong. And it shows us the depths of that nature in us by enlivening temptation in us. So then, if the law does all of these things, it must be terrible, right? The law must be terrible. Paul says, no, no. The law is not the problem, right? Our final final verse, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem isn't with the law. The law is a mirror. And when it shows us the dirt that is all over us, the problem isn't that the mirror is broken. Nope, the mirror is operating just as a mirror is intended to operate. The problem is with the dirt that is all over me, that the law is showing. That's the problem. And so the law isn't the issue, the law is holy. The commandments are holy, and most importantly, as it shows me that dirt that is all over me, it plays that highest function of showing me what? How desperately I need a Savior. When I hold myself up, my daily life up, to the commands of God and see how broken I am and how sinful I am, it does that ultimate good in my life of pushing me towards Jesus and my need for a Savior. That's the role that the law plays in our life. It it doesn't save us, but it is beautiful and necessary in showing us our need for salvation. I'd like to take a couple of minutes today and just spend some time looking at the mirror of God's commands. Would you guys bow your heads with me? Sin is always seeking to creep back into our lives. I would ask you to spend a moment with God's Spirit just examining your life to see if any sin has crept back in. Is there any hate in your heart that you need to deal with? Is there any unforgiveness that you're living in? Any selfishness That you need to confess? Are there any words that have torn other people down? Is there any gossip? Any lies? Have you coveted what other people own? Have you coveted what the world says you need to be happy? Have you coveted or lusted after other people? Is there anything that you've put ahead of God in your daily living? As we hold our life up to the mirror of God's commands, we see the, the dirt and unclean uncleanliness. And as we begin to transition into a time of the Lord's table, I want to remind you, as you see your sins directly before you, I want to remind you of what Romans 5.20 said, that where sin increased grace abounded all the more. Where sin increased, grace overflowed all the more. And so as we prepare to remember what Jesus has done around this table, we not only call to our minds those things that we have done that are wrong, that are sinful, we also transition to celebrate the great grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus and what he has done on our behalf. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In a moment, we're going to continue to sing Jesus' praises. And as we do, when your heart is ready, I'd encourage you to go to the tables in the corners and grab the bread and the cup and bring it back to your seats. And I'll lead us in the taking of the elements in just a moment. But right now, let's continue to praise Jesus Christ in song.